Today's lecture is one that I'm particularly interested in, I think is important, and it often gets overlooked. It's not a part of the mainstream discussion of the nonprofit sector, and it's this whole arena of advocacy, lobbying, and campaigning. So most people who go into the nonprofit sector see a social need that they want to address. And so their nonprofit tends to provide services or products to address that need. But what it doesn't do is deal with the systemic reasons or causes for why that need exists in the first place. This is where advocacy and lobbying comes in. It's an opportunity to address the systemic causes of the particular need. I was talking with the executive director of a social justice-oriented nonprofit. She asked me, like I was talking to her about her organization, she said, well, Brad, what's your theory of change? And I was like, what? She goes, well, everything you do is going to be driven by your theory of change. How does change occur? And as I thought about it, it was a very fascinating question because typically in the nonprofit sector, we put our heads down and we just keep working at it. If you're working at a, a food bank, you're like, I'm going to provide food to people who need it. And you could be providing food for your entire life to these people, and there'll be a continuous steady stream of people needing food. But if you don't lift up your head and say, okay, well, why, say in Bloomington, is there a lot of people with high food needs? What's the cause of that? And do I just want to continue to be doling out food for the rest of my life, or do I want to be a part of going upstream and seeing, well, why is there this steady flow of people needing food? Is it because of lack of job skills? Is it because of low minimum wage levels? Or what are sort of the systemic things that are causing people to be food insecure and needing to come to the food bank to get more food? And so advocacy and lobbying relates to these upstream things. And then how that's framed is, what's your theory of change? How do you change the levels of food insecurity in society? It really isn't changed by giving people food. It's changed by changing the system that can then address why people have food insecurity. So if you think about your nonprofit, the nonprofit that you're starting up, what is the issue that you're trying to address, and then what's your theory of change, or how would you go about actually changing that? So not necessarily just by giving out food, but think more big picture. How could you actually work yourself out of business so that your organization would actually no longer need to exist because you've come up with a theory of change that actually over time, like in five or ten years, you'd work yourself out of business and you could go and shift to another type of issue. So throw out like the issue that your organization is attempting to address. Let's pick one organization. Yeah, Jess. We're trying to combat the fact that schools have cut so much arts funding that there is no exposure to the arts and children under the age, or people under the age of 18. Okay, especially in low resource. Low resource areas, so inner cities, specifically industrial cities that have either fallen or are struggling. Okay, and so then if we think about that, the nonprofit could continue to exist. And my question being, what is your theory of change? How does change happen? A lot of it's through branching organizations and stuff like that. Change happens on an upward, on the ground level in arts. So it happens in grants, it happens in government fundings. Okay, yeah? I'd say that they become so successful that they could go to the school board and then 
they could implement their program into school systems in addition to music programs, or if they don't have any as a new program? So like if they could demonstrate, hey, we've been running this program for five years, and we've been scrapping funding from grants and foundations, but we can demonstrate the value and the benefit of this program such that schools should feel compelled to incorporate it into their overall budget. And in this sense, it would be sort of lobbying the school board to say, hey, listen, this needs to be mainstream. It can't just be a side project. But just like we have math and science, we think it's just as important to have arts. The other organizations that you're working with, so how would change come about? So like with Good Life, what's your theory of change? So people are underemployed. Do you mean the Good Life? You said Good Life. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah. I think it ultimately goes back further than the age when they don't have the happy job. But ultimately, you could go back to the education they had before that. But the need is just relationships with people who can help. OK. Your theory of change is, emphasizes the importance of relational connections mm -hmm. and being networked with people who can help you in your situation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think like the people that we're going to be trying to help really maybe haven't ever been asked, you know, like what do they want to do? Uh -huh. Anything like that is kind of what our theme behind it is, is, you know, like they might be high school dropouts or just trying to like, maintain like a sustainable life. Sure. And so like hopefully we just want to help them like discover their passions and kind of give them the tools that they need to like make themselves more professional to take the next step, I guess, okay. in the professional world. So part of the theory of change is actually engaging your constituents yeah. and seeing what are the roadblocks, what are the obstacles, what are the things that you haven't had access to that have inhibited you. So that's a big part of it. I mean, a lot of times nonprofits want to save the world, but they don't actually ask the people, what is it that you really need or what could be most helpful or most beneficial? So the last group we'll do is the Bluefields. What's your theory of change with the Bluefields Academy of starting a school in Nicaragua? What's your theory of how to actually bring about substantial change. It's a social norm for kids to like grow up in Nicaragua and like not have education be a high value. It's almost as if they're born into like a working society, like mm -hmm. they're, they're just born to like go and get a job and be there for like the rest of their life. So maybe if we could find a way to like get education to be a higher value to where they care more about education, want to go to school and like want to educate themselves, mm -hmm. and just make it more like important. So these are all three very different, like we talked about lobbying the school board, helping people with <coughs> relational connections, engaging the constituents, and changing social norms. So like in the U.S., it's pretty standard that you go to high school and you graduate from high school. I mean, it's off the charts as far as the percentage of the U.S. population that graduates from high school. And it's actually built into the laws. I mean, there's truancy laws that if you don't go to school, the parents get fined and they get in trouble. And so in Nicaragua, those social norms aren't as strong. So part of Bluefields Academy is providing education, but also trying to change the social norms of that society, such that schooling and education is something that everyone does. Yeah. I have a question. If you're with an organization like just a food bank, and you're just focused on treating like a symptom of a problem, is it like your responsibility to also try and tackle the greater problem? Like, do people expect that of you? Or what do you think? I don't know. I guess just like we have like a lot of food pantries like in like Springfield, and none of them that I know, but like no one expects that of them. Yeah. Like, 
Is that something most organizations like are expected to do? Well, well, here, but there's a part in the book that said, uh, like the CEOs, it's not that they don't want to do advocacy, but they just don't know how to approach it. Mm -hmm. They don't know what tools to use. So maybe they just were educated in nonprofit management or leadership, and so they don't know how to approach that law type change yeah. with lobbying. It's a different skill set. And a lot of people who are running a food pantry say are good at you know interacting with the clients and sort of maybe logistics of getting food, but not necessarily in what would it mean to lobby. And a lot of times, the smaller organizations, maybe like those food pantries, they don't have the money to hire the people to do it. I and mean, current staff isn't able to for whatever sure. reasons. Jess, what were you going to say? Um, in Atlanta, a lot of the food pantries actually partner with other organizations like underemployment organizations and so places that are help, either helping you get back to work, drug rehabilitation and stuff, and what they do is that they don't address it themselves, but they facilitate a response. Mm -hmm. So they provide a way that we're going to feed you at this meal time, but before we feed you this meal for 30 minutes, we're going to have a presentation on getting you back in the workforce or getting you mental health or getting... So that it's... It's not that they're necessarily addressing it themselves, they're just providing access for other organizations to get their purpose. So they're collaborating with yeah. not just lobbyists, but mental health care providers come in and help yeah. out with the people. So uh, there's a huge, huge food bank downtown Atlanta, and they have people that come in from Emory, and they do free health screenings, and like the four days a month that they do the completely free health screenings, are the busiest days at the food banks because you can go in, get your health screen, and if you have medications that you're required to be on, even if you are either disenfranchised by food alone or a lot of the people going to food banks are, for, are homeless, it's how they keep their medications up to date. So, mm -hmm. like, you can still be homeless and get your blood pressure medication. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so the bigger question is, if you're running a food bank, should you be expected to do? addressing systemic issues related to food insecurity. Should that be an expectation? Well, I don't see why you would, especially in like the case of a food bank, why you would just want to treat the symptom. Do you want people to be homeless still? Like, keeps I feel like it's kind business. of a no-brainer. Like, it does keep you in business, but like, of course you want to change it, so why wouldn't you sure. take the extra steps instead of just keep feeding homeless people so you'd say a strong yes, like you should be addressing some of the systemic issues. Other people, why is it the case that then in your town there's all these food banks and very few of them, if any, are actually doing it? You know, so the assumption is people who are involved in food banks care about the food and the well-being of the people. And so then why wouldn't they be addressing the more systemic issues? Yeah. I think the main reason is because there are organizations who do that, but there are day-to-day -day things that these organizations have to take part in and have to be able to do. And if you don't have people, you don't have resources that are continuing to give food, or you're giving opportunities for local supermarkets or, or different organizations to donate this food, it's taken away from part of the issue of what it is. And mm -hmm. those people who are benefiting from it will be benefiting from it in the future, and it could hurt the entire outcome of what the problem can be at stake. It's continually giving them something, but not an end product, which other organizations then are focusing on helping. So you're saying that it's a choice between providing for the immediate needs and allocating your resources towards that versus getting distracted doing 
the more longer term advocacy work? At times, and I think that there are many organizations that have that main focus of doing one or the other, mm -hmm. but then working together and partnering with each other. I know from the DC area, a lot of the different organizations at least partner with each other or at least talk to one another, yeah. uh, especially the homeless conversation and the homeless issue. Sure. So they're trying to help each other out in different ways and they know one another, mm -hmm. so they're bouncing ideas back off each other to help each other out. Sure. The reason I bring this up is I, I'm working with an assumption that say you are working for a nonprofit, it's probably related to an issue that you care deeply about. Like that's the assumption that I'll make. And so if you care deeply about this issue and you actually want to see it solved, I would argue that you want to meet the immediate needs, but then in the back of your mind always be thinking about well, how can we work ourselves out of a job so that this need is addressed on a much larger scale. And it might not be you who does it, as just said, it could be just being in collaboration with organizations that are addressing the same issue, but maybe at a systemic level or like are, are part of advocacy or lobbying. And so we're going to look at the life cycle of social change issues. I, I find this really interesting because the norm is we just address the needs, the immediate needs, and we never really look at the upstream causes of these problems. So this gives a flow of how you would actually bring about systemic social change. And the example I'm going to use is one that you're probably familiar with, but you don't know the origins of it. And it's uh, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, MAD, started by one woman whose child was killed by a drunk driver. This was in the 1980s. Her response to the death of her child wasn't just to start a support group but is actually to start an advocacy and lobbying organization that would change the laws and change the social perceptions related to drunk driving. So it was much more than just a support group. It was actually saying, I want to create a society where the number of deaths by drunk driving would be dramatically reduced. If you think about drunk driving, what's really fascinating, pre-1980s, Drunk driving wasn't even a concept, wasn't even a term. It certainly happened, but the word drunk driving didn't even exist. And so it was something such that, one, they didn't even have a way to measure. You know, they didn't have breathalyzers. So you'd have to be super intoxicated, like noticeably intoxicated. And if the police officer pulled you over, they would say, hey, you're not in the condition to drive. And often the police officer would just drive you home. But there were no laws in place that you can't be driving while intoxicated. It wasn't even a misdemeanor. It was just like, you're not in a good condition to drive. So I'm talking about it in regards to drunk driving, but you can think of a bunch of different social issues that we're not even cognizant of. There's like inattention to the problem. And so the first start is raising awareness of the problem or discovering the problem. With Mothers Against Drunk Driving, is there's this sense of a discovery of the problem, which sounds kind of strange, but it's like, well, why do we need to discover it? But it, what was interesting was there wasn't any statistics kept on accidents involving alcohol. When it got reported, it was just an accident. There wasn't a differentiation, like, well, was there, accident, was there alcohol involved in the accident? So, like, you think of last week, the school bus that crashed and a number of children died. You know, the first thing they asked was, was there alcohol involved? Was the driver drinking? and they do background checks on, do you have a record of driving while intoxicated? You know, these questions didn't even exist. And so in a sense, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers 
discovered, hey, listen, this is a problem. And then part of MADS campaign was to increase public awareness. So if you think about it now, people's understanding of drunk driving, or even yourself, when you're drinking, the, the concept of a designated driver or the concept of using Uber if you've been drinking is, is a result of increasing public awareness. It's pervasive now, and part of this advocacy campaign is here's a problem, and it's increasing the awareness of the problem. And so then the part where advocacy and lobbying comes in is proposing possible solutions. With Mothers Against Drunk Driving, driving while intoxicated is pervasive. And, it, and it's taking the lives of people that we love, and innocent lives. People, you know, there's often more times the victim of drunk drivers. The actual driver who's drunk usually survives. And so the possible solutions, one was stigmatizing drunk driving. So we talk about social norms. This isn't anything to do with laws. It's just like, if you're known as a drunk driver, that's highly stigmatizing now. You know, way back when uh, Ted Kennedy, he was caught, I don't know the full details of the story, but it's known that he drank a lot and that he would drive when he was drinking, but it wasn't stigmatized. It was just like, oh, that's Ted Kennedy. You know, that's just what he does. Nowadays, if you get caught drunk driving, that's a big black mark on your record. So there's social stigma associated with it. That was one possible solution, stigmatizing the particular issue. Another one was there's no laws on the books. So we need to go to state legislators and federal courts to say, hey, there needs to be laws, there needs to be clear standards, so that now when you take your driver's license test, they ask you, what's your minimum blood alcohol level that you can have? Well, again, that law didn't exist before, and now every time you take your driver's license exam, you get asked the question, what's the minimum amount of alcohol that you can have in your system and still drive legally? There's clear laws that are in place, so as an organization, the best thing that they had said was the invention of the breathalyzer, so there was no tool to measure how drunk a person was. Another possible solution was, okay, we need some sort of way to be able to measure blood alcohol levels so that we can actually enforce these laws. And they picked those three possible solutions and said, how do we launch those on a large scale? Work to get laws passed first at local levels, then at state levels, and eventually at federal level. And again, their campaigns were not only national, but then they've gone global, internationally, against the issue of drunk driving or driving while intoxicated. It starts off with one person with a problem that's not getting much attention, and then it grows and progresses to possible solutions, and then implementing those solutions. So now, you guys are part of a generation where it's like, this is just the norm. But 30 years ago, those laws and this perception of drunk driving wasn't even on the radar, a non-existent problem for the most part. So then MAD is at a place where we've dealt with drunk driving in a fairly significant way. Okay, well then how can we pivot or what other issues could we be addressing? Now it's addressing issues like seatbelt laws. I mean, that was probably like 15 years ago where they began to say, okay, what are other sort of related laws that are taking the lives of people that unnecessarily? So one was seatbelt laws, one was background checks for bus drivers, so school bus drivers or mega bus drivers where they have large numbers of people that they're responsible for, and yet there was little background checks on these people who are driving. And the last part is either the organization achieves success, or they fail. They've ramped up, they've done all that they can, and it just it doesn't work. So like one might be the organization that wanted to prevent same-sex marriage. There's plenty of organizations out there that were advocating and lobbying to prevent same-sex marriage, 
but now it's become federally legalized. And so this organization has to say, well, do we keep fighting it, or do we just sort of close up shop and move on? Or the issue falls off the radar and we forget about it again. This is the life cycle of any type of social change organization. What are other ones that you can see map onto the social change dynamic? Yeah. Environmental stuff, okay. I guess. Like yeah. The environmental movement as a whole is a relatively new phenomenon. You know, 40 years ago, it wasn't really on people's radar. And now you're talking about environmentalism or climate change, and everyone knows exactly what you're talking about. Eric. So with the NFL, like concussion. Okay. Football, yeah, yeah. Like exactly. The head out of the game now. They don't get as many concussions. Yeah. Concussions 20 years ago, it was non existent. And now you can't watch a football game without it coming up or being discussed or being talked about. Or ESPN has a documentary on it. Yeah. Just going to add another one. Abolishing segregation or. Yeah. Like one good example or concrete one is residential segregation. <coughs> But in the 60s, the amounts of residential segregation by race hit ahead, and they realized that banks and real estate agents were actually directing people to certain neighborhoods and systematically trying to segregate, encouraging people to live in a more segregated society. And it's like, well, wait a minute, we need to have laws in place that protect people from being taken advantage of in that way. Yeah? I think this one's just stopping street harassment and like catcalling. Yeah, and related to that would be like bullying. And that's probably a new emergent thing of like, well, should we have bullying laws and how should schools deal with bullying? But all of these are related to advocacy and lobbying if you want systemic change. Is that you didn't really know about how animals are treated when it came to like food processing and things like yes. that. But you find a lot more vegans and vegetarians because of it in our, in our culture. Sure. Animal rights are against cruelty towards animals. So if you think about all these things, you need to identify what is the social issue or cause that you're most passionate about and what would it look like to walk through this life cycle of social change such that you come to a point where it's being addressed on a national scale with laws, it's being addressed with social awareness and social norms. One that comes to mind for me, which it's easy to look at the success stories like the environmental movement. Like, well, that's a no-brainer. Of course that should be like on everyone's radar. But there's plenty of issues that still are below the radar, or ones that have tried to emerge into the public scene. And I think one of the exciting things is identifying the emerging social issues, being on the forefront of advocating on behalf of those issues. And one that's probably, I'll say in the last five years, is emerging, and it's emerging on a national scale, is this idea of mass incarceration, the industrial prison complex, where they look at the percentages of people in the U.S. prison system and looking at how disproportionate that number is relative to other countries in the developed world. And also, probably even more egregious, is the disproportionate number of people of color who are in the prison system relative to the percentage of people of color in the entire population. And saying, wait a minute, is there systematic discrimination going on such that people of color are more likely to be put into prison. And then once you're in prison and even get out of prison, your life chances of getting a job, of having a stable life, are reduced dramatically. We're going to watch a, a quick video that talks about mass incarceration. And it's walking through how do you increase awareness, how do you bring about change, and what are possible solutions related to mass incarceration. So as you watch this, think about it through the lens of how do you bring about social change related to this particular issue. 
The racial composition of the prison population in the United States is very different from the population at large. If people are worried about inequality in America today, I think this deserves more attention in the discussion. Racial inequality in the criminal justice system gets ignored because it doesn't affect most people. In 2010, over 1.6 million people were in state and federal prisons within the United States. So, 497 out of every 100,000 Americans were in jail. About half of 1%. Less than 1%. That doesn't seem very large, but when you separate that population by race, you recognize that the personal effects of the criminal justice system are very unequally shared throughout our society. Whites make up 64% of the total population, but only 31% of the incarcerated population. Blacks represent 14% of society, but 36% of the prison population. Hispanics are 16% of America, but 24% of the American prison population. Less than 1 in 100 Americans are currently in jail, but for some races, genders, and age groups, that ratio is a lot larger. For example, if you're young, black, and male, it's closer to about one in four. That means you'd have a higher probability of going to jail than of getting married or going to college. These results are unequal and problematic as poor black communities lack so many of their members. But what can be done? The causes of this trend are undoubtedly complicated and multi-causal. But there is reason to suggest that part of the blame is our criminal justice system itself in the ways police officers enforce laws, in the ways that laws are written and prosecuted, and more. In many cases, it is not overt racism by individual actors. Many police officers, prosecutors, and judges are undoubtedly trying to be fair and trying to do the right thing. But economics can explain how unequal enforcement of the criminal law happens anyway. This is because the political and bureaucratic structure of the criminal justice system creates perverse incentives. The formal laws surrounding drug prohibition, for example, are written as if to be colorblind, but people with different levels of wealth face different costs and benefits to participating in the drug trade. Different groups consume different drugs at different rates, and lastly, those groups are politically represented in very different quantities. Thus, they are arrested and incarcerated at very different rates. How could minority groups hope to use the political process to fix inequality when they are systematically over-incarcerated and disenfranchised. Despite noble intentions, politics often does not affect the basic incentives of costs and benefits faced by political or citizen actors. We might need a new approach to social change if we are going to address these problems. We definitely need more study into the causes of inequality, and we should admit that radical changes might be both necessary and preferable to the status quo. As you watch this video and look at this topic, what aspects of the life cycle do you see being played out as it relates to mass incarceration or the criminal justice system? Probably increasing public awareness. Like not many people are aware of like this issue. Like they're aware that there's like a lot of people incarcerated, but they're not like really aware of like the unequal like racial. So uh, both the number of people in the prison and then the demographics of the people and why that would be the case. And I think it's also a little bit of proposing possible solutions because, like, they're talking about, like, why this is an issue and, like, how this happened. Mm -hmm. And I think that whenever you're looking into what is the systematic problem, you're also trying to 
possibly figure out like a way that you can fix it. Sure. Again, this isn't iterative where you need to go step by step, but it's more like a multi-pronged approach. So as you're bringing awareness to the problem, you're also thinking about possible solutions. What are other aspects of the life cycle that you saw or observed just from the video? I mean, it definitely talks about the first two. It talks about the inattention. It talks about that we've now discovered it. We've gotten to increase in public awareness, and now at the end of the video, he talked about proposing possible solutions. We mm -hmm. talked about how we could change lobbying and things like that. So I think we've gotten halfway through. <laughs> They're halfway there. Yeah. Well, is there is another hand. It could have touched on assessing and redirecting efforts, like not in that they're choosing a different topic to redirect their efforts to, but just a different um, way, which might be not lobbying stuff, but instead choosing a radical. Uh huh. I mean, the reason why I picked this example is because it's still a problem. It's not one like Mother Against Drunk Driving, where it's like they've more or less achieved success, like they've accomplished their mission. This one is like, how do we deal with this? I mean, part of it is the privatization of prisons created this perverse incentive to actually keep people in prison and to fill the prison. So there's these incentives that are in place that actually are working to populate, you know, bring more people into prison because these private prisons have built these big prisons and they want 100% residency. Like, if you own a hotel, how do you increase occupancy? Same with these prisons. But if you also think about it with possible solutions, like President Obama has pardoned more people than the last four presidents combined. And the people that he's pardoned are people who were convicted of nonviolent drug offenses. In the 80s and 90s, the laws were such that if you had any type of drug-related infraction, very stiff prison penalties. Well, those laws have since changed, but there's a huge number of people in prison that are still serving these longer sentences. And so if you look at the people that President Obama has pardoned, it's been these people with nonviolent drug offenses that, in a sense, under current laws, they've served their full time. So President Obama, that wasn't necessarily one of his agendas. It was people who were advocating and lobbying on behalf of the incarcerated people saying, hey, listen, these people have been in prison for over 10 years, and the current laws would say that the crimes that they committed, they should only be in prison for five years. It's a no-brainer then for you to use your executive order to pardon them, to allow them out of jail. But then there's other solutions of, of changing the laws and changing the way that these things are enforced and how it works with entering and exiting the prison system. Thinking about your organization, particular issue that you're interested in, how can we bring about systematic change? Or how could I be a part of bringing about systematic change? And so one aspect is advocacy. And when you guys hear the word advocacy, what words come to mind? What do you associate it with? Like support. Support. Representation. Representation, yeah. A child uh, in the foster care system hopefully would have an advocate, someone that would be their voice or, or represent them. Yeah. A lot of time you hear it with like fundraising, and, like you're advocating or representing this organization in order to receive more funding. Okay. Any other experiences with advocacy where you've heard it or you've, you've seen it come up? I was just kind of like before reading the chapter, I looked at advocacy like on a bigger scale. But then, like, the book kind of explained that, I mean, you kind of do it advocating in your, like, in little ways, like, every day. Sure. Like, advocating for your opinion on certain, like, topics or whatever, like, uh -huh. you're working with other people or something like that. Yeah. Like, you're a spokesperson for your particular cause. So the definition 
it's action taken in support of a cause or idea. So what you're saying is we actually are all advocates on some level. It's whether or not we're strategic about it and conscious of it is another question. We might just be advocating for certain things without even knowing it, but if we actually organize a large group of people to advocate for a cause or idea. And advocating is associated with people who lack a voice, who lack power, who lack representation. You typically advocate, you know, you don't advocate for the powerful. No one's advocating for the elites of society. It's advocating for people who don't have a voice or don't have power. In what ways could advocacy be paternalistic, taking over, disempowering people in some ways? Some organizations that use religion mm -hmm. as a driving force can leave out groups of people from that mission that they have. Sure. So it can take away their power. Yeah. Or just sort of begin to make decisions for them in ways that aren't helpful or beneficial to the individual. So we'll pick up on Thursday talking more about advocacy and lobbying.